we're continuing uh, our series that we started two weeks ago called Not Supposed to Be This Way. And it's kind of, uh, well, it is. It's a sermon series about um, sin. So, sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Uh, we're going to talk about sin for the next little while. And uh, it, we don't need... Um, we don't need things like Amber Alerts on our cell phones uh, to um, remind us that, uh, you know, there's something wrong with this world. Like, it's, just, it's not supposed to happen like this. Right? It's not supposed to be this way. We, we don't need reminders like that because we know. Even uh, in our own workplaces or schools or in our own families, we realize this, this isn't, you know, how it's supposed to be. I, I'm supposed to be able to trust my coworkers. Right? I'm supposed to be able to um, have confidence in my managers or supervisors, and, and they're supposed to um, manage with fairness, and we're supposed to be able to trust that news reporters are intentionally trying to give us news, not trying to bias things or slant things in a certain favor. And when they do make mistakes, they're supposed to tell us, oh, that was wrong, sorry, we, we misinterpreted something here, so here's the truth, but we, we feel like we can't trust people. We know it's not supposed to be this way. And uh, just I want to review uh, from a couple weeks ago. If you have your notes, um, we don't talk about sin that much anymore. We don't really like that word. As I mentioned um, in a, co- a couple weeks ago, often I hear that word, um, a dessert menu, or like, you know, dessert sensations, which doesn't exist anymore because sin was in the word. Maybe that's why they're in bankrupt. I don't know. But, or maybe they just moved. Maybe they still exist. But things like peanut butter, you know, what? Sin or like... Uh, there's sinful words in, in, the, in the menu desserts, but we don't talk about it much as, as biblically um, is meant to be. So um, in your notes, there's some quotes there, and there was a psychiatrist, and I'm just going to review this because um, it's from a couple weeks ago. He says, the very word sin, okay, seems to have disappeared. Um, it was once a proud word. It was once a strong word. It was ominous and serious, but the word kind of went away. It's almost disappeared, the word and the notion behind it. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? That must be the reason. That's why we don't talk about it, right? Because we don't sin anymore, do we? Uh, He was being facetious. Uh, Or C.S. Lewis, a lot of us like his writings, and he noted once, he said, "Um, the barrier that I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. We don't seem to be aware of it. And the New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, uh, he said this about uh, doing evangelism in universities these days. He says, students generally have no idea of sin. They know how to sin very well, but they have no idea what constitutes sin. You know, was that sin? Was it not sin? Um, So these statements only confirm uh, what we already know, that this word, the whole notion of it, seems to be disappearing from our culture, but it is not disappearing from uh, the scripture. And so when we look at this world, it's not really supposed to be this way. Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, we won't read that today, but that's a good description of this concept in the Bible of shalom. Like, not just peace, but peace is, is kind of a word we often use to describe it, but this, this flourishing of society where there is justice and righteousness and things are the way they are supposed to be. And so we know we are moving toward that as we read the scriptures and we look at the story of, of Christianity. We know we're getting there, but right now... It is not supposed to be this way. And the reason is because of of sin. The sins that we do, the sins that we we commit by not doing something, the sins that um, are caused, or our sins that cause other things to happen, like a domino effect. And so we have um, 
this problem. It is not supposed to be this way. I want to talk about sin uh, because it is central uh, to Christianity. And if we don't understand sin, we can't understand grace uh, or forgiveness. And what is Christianity without grace or forgiveness? So we need to understand, it's good for us to talk about this so that we can clearly understand. And I mentioned a couple weeks ago about John Newton. Remember who he was? He wrote that great hymn. What was the hymn? Amazing Grace. Even non-believers seem to know that verse. And it was funny, a song uh, in Japan, very largely non-Christian culture. For some reason, everyone knows that hymn. Maybe not the younger people, but you could start humming it. And they could, how do they know? I don't even know. But anyways, it's a very worldwide uh, popular hymn. But John Newton, who once was a slave trader, and um, later um, his life changed around. Um, he became a customs officer, he studied theology, and he eventually became a minister. But even as a minister, John Newton never forgot the horrible nature of his sin uh, in the past as a slave trader. And at the end of his life, Newton said to a friend, he said, you know, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. These are two things that will be coming up again and again over the next couple of weeks. We talked about a couple of weeks ago as well. We are, I'm putting you in there too, so we are great sinners. And Christ is a great Savior. This is the truth of a Christian story, the truth of just truth in general. But the Apostle Paul also said the very same thing. The Apostle Paul, who once was a terrorist, right, dragging people out of their homes and having them uh, publicly uh, murdered and stoned, and it did simply because he believed in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, who later, uh, his life was also changed, he said, here's a trustworthy say saying that deserves full acceptance. Right? Kind of the same thing that John Newton once said. Um, Paul said it first, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. The Apostle Paul saying words like this. Can we say that? Do you understand um, your sin? Is it clear you know, what constitutes sin? And Can you say along with the Apostle Paul that, yeah, I'm a pretty bad sinner? Or can you say I'm the worst? Recognizing, though, that we have a great Savior. And I talked with you a couple weeks ago about preaching the gospel to yourself. And I gave you a cheat sheet. Someone thought that was ironic. Why are we cheating? You know, if it's a gospel thing, but you know what I mean. Could have called it Cliff's Note or something else, but just a, an abridged version, maybe that you could stick in your Bible or in, in your journal uh, to preach the gospel to yourself. And I want you to know, um, when you think about your sin and your need for forgiveness, you, you first of all have to understand God is for you. He's not against you. God, um, he's not your judge. He's your heavenly father. And he takes sin seriously, but he's dealt with it. And so, if you understand God's for you, then just go ahead. Like, let him forgive you. Confess it. Right, look, I, I messed up. I sinned. This is what it is. Will you please forgive me? And God is faithful and he's just and he loves to forgive you. You can even be assured, before you even confess your sins, that he is going to uh, forgive you because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And some people ask this question, you know, how do we know that Jesus loves you know, me? I, I get that he loves the world, right? John 3.16, God loves the world. But how about like, personally, individually, me? We see an example in the Apostle Paul who personalized this gospel for himself. And since he's in the scripture, he's inspired by God. It's God's word. It, it's a good example for us, isn't it? 
And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, um, he talks about the Son of God, he says, who loved me, singular, and gave himself for me, the Apostle Paul saying this. So we can personalize it. We can understand, yes, he loved the world, but he also loved me, and he loved you, and he died for me, and he died for you. And then I gave you some, some uh, really simple advice. Just, just confess and name it as sin. This is sin. Confess the sin. Uh, repent, receive God's forgiveness. And then because it's been so ingrained in our culture that sin doesn't exist or, or, or we, it's just hard for us to understand sin, just, there's a bunch of verses here that you can read. And if you want this gospel cheat sheet, then uh, let us know or send us an email. We'll send it to you if you've lost it from last time. That's just a quick uh, review of where we are going with some of this. And I remember Christmas Eve, Pastor Jordy was sharing a, a little message and he had us raise our hands and he said, how many of you, you know, have been wronged by somebody? And most of us probably or all of us raised our hands. And I forget the exact things, but he said, you know, have, how many have been lied to or how many have been spoken badly about or, you know, oh yeah, people treat me you know, bad all the time. And then he said, um, how many of you have hurt other people? You know, how many of you have lied about or treated other people badly? And then I think it was harder, you know, it's, a, it's hard to admit that, right? But yeah. Me too, I have done that. Uh, just recognize, it's hard for us to recognize maybe that. But anyways, let's talk about this. And uh, today, we also are celebrating um, communion. This is uh, the Lord's table. It is a table of mercy. And so we're, we're getting here. We're getting to the forgiveness part. But right now, I just want to dwell on or talk about or highlight um, a sin that um, most of us, if not all of us, uh, are guilty of to some extent. And then I want to just highlight that, show how, because we need to, we, we're here to receive God's forgiveness. And when we are here, we're going to proclaim the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's coming back again. We're going to proclaim the gospel, but we also will experience the gospel, the forgiveness. We'll experience the grace. We'll experience the mercy. But first, let's talk about one of these sins and I'm calling this sin um, the sin of ungodliness. At first you might think, well, we're not guilty of the sin of ungodliness. We're, we're Christians. Right? We're believers. We go to church. The ungodly are people who don't. You know, they're atheists or people who don't believe in God. Well, that is not quite right. Let me explain and define a little bit about the sin of ungodliness. It is not the same thing as uh, wickedness or unrighteousness or just simply not believing in God. Look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It, it talks about uh, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness okay, and wickedness okay, of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So godlessness is not the same as wickedness. It is not the same as just being unrighteous or, or doing uh, it's not the same, godlessness is not the same as being unrighteous or doing the wrong things. What is godlessness? It's separate. You can be um, a very um, good citizen, a very upright moral person. You can be a very good neighbor and yet uh, be an atheist. You don't have to believe in God to be a good person. Some other religions actually have very high moral standards. And, and if they move into my neighbor, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm really happy. You know, that these people here, because I know their religion gives them high moral standards, and they're going to behave well. It's okay to behave well, but you can still be ungodly. Let me explain uh, a little more. 
here's a simple uh, definition, ungodliness. Simply put, it is living your life, okay, your everyday life, with like no thought of God, with little or maybe no thought of God. Uh, if you watch some of these popular preachers uh, on, on, um, on YouTube or podcasts, as, as many of us do, several years ago, um, there was a popular preacher who wrote a book called The Christian Atheist. Maybe you've heard of that, or you've heard people talk about it, like, what, a Christian atheist? It was, the idea behind the book is that many people call themselves Christians, and yet they don't act like they believe in Christ. They don't act like they follow Christ. They say they do, but their behaviors don't show. So that's kind of being, on, you live your life with little or no thought of God. And Christians can do this just as much as non-Christians. We can come to church once a week, we can do certain things, we can, we can make ourselves feel like we're doing the right things, be very religious, but the rest of the week we don't give any thought uh, at all to God. So that living one's life, this is what I'm saying is, is ungodly, different from righteousness or different from our behaviors. Living one's everyday life with little or no thought to God or of God's will, and what does God want for you or for your family? Not what I want, what I think is best, what is, what is God, or, or of God's glory or one's dependence on God, not recognizing that you are completely and utterly dependent on God for every single breath that you take. Just shoving that aside for not being intentionally thinking about that's ungodliness. You're living as if God didn't exist, even though you say you believe it. So every one of us, to some extent, we're on this scale of somewhere we are, only Jesus is perfectly godly, but somewhere we have, um, we're guilty of this sin. It's easy to read our Bibles, uh, pray. It's easy to read our Bibles, pray, memorize verses, and then just go back to our weekly routines as if God didn't really exist. We don't think of being dependent on God as part of our responsibility. We, we maybe we don't give thanks to God enough, which is not a good thing in God's eyes. Being, thank, being unthankful leads to so many other things. We could go for hours in a day without even thinking about God at all. We're hardly different. In some ways, we can be hardly different from nice people. There are people at your work and in your schools who are very nice, right? But they don't believe in God. We can be just like them, even though we believe in God because we're being ungodly. Let's be more intentional with thinking uh, about God. This is, this is ungodliness. So now I'd like to explain a little further. Here is one expression uh, of godliness that you might recognize uh, in your life or maybe uh, in someone else's life. Making plans without acknowledging our utter dependence on God. It is good to make plans. It would be unwise to not make plans. We get things accomplished by making plans. To-do lists and planning ahead, these are very wise things to do. But if we do not acknowledge we are completely and utterly dependent on God, that is ungodliness. So James chapter 4, verse 13 to 15 says this. Now listen. James says, you who say today or tomorrow, do you ever say this? No? Today or tomorrow, we're going to go here and do that. We'll go to this, this or that city, uh, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Nothing wrong with that, right? These are good things to do, plan ahead. Well, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? He says, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We are not here forever. We are not eternal beings. Instead, he says you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, okay, 
we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, maybe we will live and, and do this or that. But how often do we go ahead and make plans without acknowledging that every single thing is utterly dependent on God? And sometimes when we make plans and we accomplish those goals, we think, oh, look, I am so well planned. I thought all this, I, I thought ahead of all the different you know, contingency plans and what might go wrong. I'm a good planner. And because of that, our family is where we are today, or I am where we are today, or I have been promoted, but you don't understand. That is all because of God. The right you're there at the right timing to get that right promotion or, or whatever it was. You had, there's so many things that you are not even aware of. And yes, it's good to make plans. So James isn't saying it's bad to make plans, but when you make plans without acknowledging that you're completely and utterly dependent on God, that is ungodliness. And many of us are guilty of living uh, in an ungodly way. Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39 says, um, you know, you have uh, notes, and these are for you to write things down. Now everything's on the screen. You maybe think, oh, Pastor Joel's about to say something from Acts chapter 5. It's not on the screen. I'll just write that down look at it later. Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. If you want to put that down, you can do that. But let me read it to you. It says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. Okay? For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, do you remember? It will fail. Okay. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. These, these leaders of the city are, well, what do we do about all these apostles that are doing these great things? It's, Look, if it's, from, if it's human origin, it's going to fail, just leave it. And so many of our plans, like, don't, don't plan without acknowledging your utter Dependence on God, it will fail. Acknowledge your utter dependence on God. Proverbs 16.9. I'm not sure if that's in your notes. Maybe it is. Is it in your notes? Proverbs 16.9. I'm going to read that one to you. In their hearts. Here's a little nugget of wisdom from the scriptures. In their hearts, humans plan their course. But what? But the Lord establishes their steps. Let God guide you. Make your plans. But just realize, you know, maybe I'm not going to get there. Maybe on the way, God will, will direct me separately. If it is the Lord's will, I will go there and do this or that. But you need to recognize that you are utterly dependent on God. Otherwise, you're guilty of living an ungodly life. Here's another symptom, another, another not a symptom, another way that ungodliness has worked out. Just not doing everything for the glory of everything. For the glory of God, like everything. I think all of us do some things for the glory of God. Or we say we are, we pray that way. You know, may, may God be glorified in my, not me, in my preaching, you know, in our worship. It's not about me, it's about God. We can pray that way, and, and, but what about everything? Not just what we do here on Sundays. If we are not doing everything for the glory of God, Colossians 3, verse 23 to 24, the Apostle Paul says this, whatever you do, so that means whatever you do, right? Isn't that what it means? Whatever you do. Work at it with all your heart, as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Now, these were directions given to us because slaves existed back in those days, but it's a principle for us to understand that um, we don't work for ourselves. Many people do. Many, many not, all non-Christians work for themselves, non-believers work for themselves, even Christians work for themselves for, for your own career for your own um, promotion, for, for your betterment of your family, which are good things. But we don't want to work for us. So everything we need to be, needs to be 
glorifying God, bringing glory to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, so whether you eat or drink, like this, for example, do everything. Do it all for the glory of God. We eat to the glory of God. We drink you know, to the glory of God. What are some things you do? Do you shop? We shop for the glory of God. Everything. Everything means everything, right? Whatever you do. You interact on Facebook for the glory of God. Everything you do, all for the glory of God. Driving in traffic when there's snow and a plow right in front of you and you're late for work, you drive for the glory of God. Everything you do. Do you work outside of the home? You do that for the glory of God. Do you work at home? Are you taking care of your, your home? Your home, but you do that for the glory of whatever you do. It's not for your own sake. It's for the glory of God. This is godliness. That's what godly people do. We desire that everything we do brings glory to God. So that would mean that God is pleased. We do our best in everything. Some people's best is better than my best. So that's fine. I can't live according to how God has gifted other people. But how he has gifted me and given me resources, I will do the best that I can do and I could give, and God will be pleased in what I do. Is that your best? Yes. Were you lazy? Okay, maybe that's not a very godly thing to do. Did you do everything for the glory of God? For me, sometimes, um, when I preach on Sundays, I have other things that I have to do, right? I've got family. Uh, I do other things than just preach, believe it or not. You know, we work more than just Sundays. Um, so sometimes what it means is I can't put 100% of my week into this thing. And that's doing my best for the glory of God because that would mean I am um, forgetting about or shirking other responsibilities. So it doesn't mean you sacrifice everything, your family, your life, your other relationships just for this one thing, but you do all for the glory of God. Sometimes as you're praying and asking God for wisdom, he might direct say, you know what, this is enough time and this, you need to focus on others, and that's your best. You're doing that for the glory of God, and God will be pleased. So sometimes it means pleasing God. It also means uh, bringing glory to God in your relationships with people, your next-door neighbor, uh, the person you share the fence with, or your coworkers, uh, or people at school. Like in those relationships, if you're doing everything for the glory of God, that will bring honor to God as well. It's possible uh, for us to turn people away from God because they may know, oh, they're believers. They go to Cornerstone Alliance Church and, like, they're cheating on, you know, this. Or they are just so... I talked about the Leafs and they got really ugly and it's like I felt hatred. Because sometimes... I should have mentioned watching sports, right? Doing all for the glory of God. Even we watch sports for the glory of God. Okay, And it's okay to joke. It's okay. I'm a Leafs fan. We're, my entire life... Right? We're used to it. Um, but I think some of us maybe have made certain sports teams idols in our own lives at certain times. I know I have at certain times, so that's, that's not... Anyways, this is a different topic. What do you do? Do it all for the glory of God. Um, why did that thing with the Leafs come into my head? 
So, right, so other people can be turned off by God because of how we react or how we act. And so I think many of us, if not all of us, are guilty of that. And it's okay. You just confess that. So, God, I, I, that was not right. And you need to make repairs, make amends. God is with you. He's the God of reconciliation. And we do what we can to bring reconciliation to every relationship. It doesn't mean every relationship is reconciled, but we are going to probably give a bad name to God at some point or Jesus. That's not living a godly life, but we can confess that, and we can make things right, and that's okay. God is more powerful, but bringing glory to God in everything we do is, is uh, what we do. We please God with what we do, and also we honor God in our relationships. And so I remember uh, at my church in Niagara Falls, there was, I mean, he was a foreman or something. I don't even know what they do, but he worked in a, fa- it was uh, Shreddy's. You know Shreddy's? I don't know if it still is. It used to be made in Niagara Falls when I was growing up, but so... If you ever visited Niagara Falls in the 70s, you would smell Shreddies because there's a factory not far from Niagara Falls. Did you ever smell that? Um, I don't know, things change a lot. But anyways, he worked uh, there. And um, he wasn't flaunting or evangelizing or passing out gospel tracts, but um, someone there um, one day asked him, are you a Christian? He said, well, yes, I am. He said, I thought so. Just behind the way he, he worked as a, as a manager, he was very... Uh, respectable and, and honest, and people could gather so that he was a believer. So that brings glory to in our relationships. So this is this is what it means to live a godly life. In uh, Romans chapter two, uh, verse twenty-three to twenty-four, it says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says. So sometimes we might do that. We might blaspheme God's name among people uh, just because of that. Anyways, one more way that. Uh, Ungodliness is expressed in our lives. Not doing all for the glory of God. Also, um, not acknowledging our utter dependence on God. And thirdly, um, this is a symptom, this is a, a way it's worked out. If we have a, a meager desire, you know, weak desire, to develop an intimate relationship with God, that's a sign of, of an ungodly lifestyle. You know, we spend the majority of our time maybe on electronic devices or watching certain shows, and it's just disproportionate to the time we are working on our relationship with God. For those of you who are married or those of you who are in other kinds of relationships, you know uh, relationships uh, take effort, don't they? It's worth it, but you put work into it. You can't just take things for granted. If you have a good friend, you... You understand, relationships take effort. So are we putting as much effort into this relationship with God? If not, that's a sign of ungodliness also. You know, if we have this, how strong is your desire to develop that, that relationship? Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. Like, it's just so thirsty, I just want more. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go? and meet with God. So a meager desire to develop an intimate relationship with God can be, or is actually, a, an outworking of this ungodly kind of lifestyle. Psalm 63 says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. It's not just in Psalm 42, it's also Psalm 63. It's all throughout Scripture. Psalm 27, the psalmist says, This one thing I ask from the Lord, just one thing, this only do I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. I chose this sin of ungodliness because it's easy for us to overlook. It's easy for us to think, oh, I'm a believer, you know, I've, I've, I'm following Jesus, so I'm not ungodly. Some of the major things, it might be harder for us to, major sins, it might be harder for us to relate to. Uh, not for all of us, though. Like, um, we could list, you know, the seven sins that are about throughout, throughout church history. Uh, we could think murder or uh, our, these things are just obviously bad things. Oh, I haven't done that. Unless you have, and you think, well, see, I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm not guilty of sin. But here's one that I think we can all relate to, to some extent. Only Jesus... Uh, as a human, lived a completely godly life. So we are somewhere on that spectrum of ungodly to completely godly. And it's something we can work on and work towards. Are you aware that um, you are ungodly in some ways? Are you aware that um, you're a great sinner, but you have a great Savior? We can't fully comprehend what Jesus did for us or how much he loves us if we don't get that we sin, we keep sinning. We can't fully understand his grace and compassion and love, and his mercy towards us. We don't, that's the first step. Just call it it's sin. It's a biblical word and it's what you're guilty of. Me too, but we're guilty of this, so just acknowledge that and let him free you. Let him forgive you, but he, he wants you to acknowledge that. And sometimes he brings it to your mind. He's like, would you just deal with that? I want to free you from that. Just admit that was wrong and let me forgive you and restore you and empower you to live this godly life. So how ungodly are you? I can't answer that question for you. Where would you be on the scale? Don't compare yourself with other people because you have no idea what's going on in their minds right now. How ungodly of a person are you? How much of your life um, do you live without any regard for God? How long do you go without thinking about him? How much of your, your day uh, do you go through without any reference to God? As you think about your own life, remember we're not talking about righteous behavior or wickedness. We're just talking about an ungodly um, and ungodliness, living as if God was completely irrelevant to every decision uh, in our lives, even shopping or watching sports. God is relevant to everything that we do. How ungodly are you? Here's some verses, and these are not in your notes, so you need to write these down or put them somewhere. This week, it's kind of homework. If you would like to work through this, 1 Timothy 4, 7, 8 are some good verses to that deal with godliness, ungodliness. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we talked about that already. Colossians 1, 9 to 10, I didn't bring that up. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Psalm, we looked at the Psalms, but they may not be in your notes. Just break these down, and here's some things that you can be reading or mulling over or praying with as you read and ask God to reveal things to you. It's okay to accept that you're a sinner. It's okay to accept that you're not perfect. In fact, it's, we're all in the same boat. Allow God's grace to wash over you. Amazing grace. Can you say 
with the Apostle Paul that, you know, I am the worst of sinners. Do you realize how ungodly you are? Recognize that. Take it to God. Know that he wants to forgive you and let him forgive you. As I said, the only person who ever lived a totally godly life is Jesus. And in just a minute, we're going to um, gather around his table, the Lord's table, and celebrate communion. I want to remind you that as we do this, we are proclaiming the gospel. We are proclaiming the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, but we're also experiencing the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He died for the forgiveness of our sins. And so I hope you experience forgiveness um, during this time as we celebrate uh, communion. So I'm going to ask the music team to come on up, but you're not going to play yet. You can just kind of come up and stand on the stage, and I'm going to come down here to the table. One question that people have sometimes, some people have sometimes, um, when it comes to communion is, you know, who, who, can, who can do this? Who can participate? Who gets to, to uh, participate? Yeah, is the right who, who gets to do this? I know that throughout history, the church has been divided. Um, in some churches, not that long ago, you needed to have a communion token, and you would bring it up to the front and show it. Or, 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 I don't know what you do with it, if you deposit it, but if you didn't have one, it meant you weren't worthy, and so you aren't um, able to participate in communion. In some places, they, there's a fence. You can have, but you can't. This person can, but this person can't. Who is, uh, one of the questions is, who is, who is worthy? Who can participate in this? And when we ask that question, when we try to answer that question, uh, guess what happens? It often becomes about us. The focus is put on on our behaviors, or, or who we are. Are we worthy enough, and have we done the right things? Have we examined ourselves long enough? But really, the focus needs to be on Jesus. He is the one who's hosting this table. And Jesus does some incredible things. I want to remind you of some of the things um, in his life. We, we come to this table because we're in need of grace, and that's every single one of us. We come to this table because we are sinners, every single one of us. We don't come to this table because we deserve it or we are worthy of it. The only way we are worthy of it is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're proclaiming this gospel, remember. Christ died and rose again. He died for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins, but we also experience the gospel. I want you to find forgiveness here this morning. One of the most compelling parts of Jesus' story for many of you and for me as well is we read the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John over and over again we see that Jesus intentionally chose to eat with sinners. He ate with them. Like, kind of like if, if he were here and were to enter a cafeteria at a school um, or a break room you know, at, at his workplace, he would go and sit with those people known to be like the worst people and eat with them. It was quite shocking. Do you remember Peter denied Jesus three times? right before he was crucified. You remember that story? And as we keep reading in John chapter 21, or sorry, as we keep reading, um, jo yeah, John chapter 21, guess what happens? Jesus is making breakfast for Peter the next day. 
he's eating with this sinner. Again, remember Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? A wee little man was he who went to Sunday school when they were younger. Um, what's that? Uh, Jesus. Oh, no, Zacchaeus. You come down. Four, I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus was known to be one of the worst. He was a sinner. And Jesus goes. And then when people saw that Jesus went there, what did, they were like, oh, this is what it says. It says, um, the people talked and they began to mutter about it. They say, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. <gasps> Earlier, same thing in Luke. It's the same thing religious leaders said, that one of the things they had against Jesus says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus. That we need to kill him. That's what they were thinking. These religious leaders thought this was awful. They probably thought, when they recognized this, they probably thought Jesus is taking sin lightly. Like just, you know, just brushing, that's no big deal. You know, brushing it off. Because he accepted sinners and forgave them. This was an abomination in their eyes. They probably thought Jesus didn't take sin seriously enough. But that's not at all what Jesus was doing. He died on the cross for our sins. To free people, to free entire communities, in fact, to free the entire world of sin. Jesus does not take sin lightly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And as the Apostle Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let us commemorate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as we come to this table of grace, this table of mercy. As we begin, and before we sing this, this final song, uh, we'll take a moment of silence. And Freely confess. Be assured that God wants to forgive you, and he likes to forgive you. He's on your side. So as things come to mind, as the Holy Spirit reveals things, will you just confess? Not out loud. Just confess to God. So we'll take a moment, and let us confess, and let us experience the gospel as we, at the same time, proclaim the gospel this morning. Let's have a moment of silence. <laughs>